following episode contains mature language and is not intended for children. If you are offended by words like unicorns or the blueberries, this might not be the episode for you. Hi guys, this is Chelsea. And I'm Sean. And we are the co-founders of Paxeros, an ethos-driven production company based out of Los Angeles, California. We are launching our inaugural Woman of Color Commercial Directing Program. This is a program where we are going to fund and produce and provide one-on-one mentorship for a woman of color who wants to break into the commercial advertising realm, specifically car commercials. We are asking applicants to write a spec script for Subaru. And specifically, we are looking for projects that embodies Subaru's love promise. Promoting equality and love for all. Also, Abel Cine and Surreal just came on board as two of our official sponsors for this program. So please apply if you are a woman of color or know someone who's a woman of color. Please share this. Applications are available until July 14th at midnight. All the information can be found on our website at paxeros.co. All right, friends, we are now ready to release this episode. We've spent hours and hours working on this dialogue and trying to get it as best as we can. This is another interview we recorded in the prime of the lockdown in 2020 from COVID-19. Hope you're all staying safe out there. Wear your mask and do the things. Let's do our part to see the end of this stuff so we can get back to some, you know, good audio. listening to the Creator Burn podcast. You are listening to the Creator Burn podcast. I think the main reason I did well, though, speaking of the, the family element, was the one thing my dad impressed upon me was just like, just remember, don't fuck this up because you're going to make me look bad and you're going to make your grandfather look bad. I got the weight of like, you know, our family name. I guess I didn't screw it up. And then, and then I just kept moving up. There was there was nothing like, I have this drive. It's just like, no, you show up on time. You're kind of figuring it out right up to my, my long journey to the middle, which is not mm-hmm. complete. They want to talk about passion, but passion's great, but you can't eat passion. Yo, what's up? Welcome mm-hmm. to another episode. What's going on, guys? What up, Davis? <laughs> hey, I kind of like doing the radio voice. Can we do the one with... Hey, what's going on, Creative Burn listeners? What's happening, Davis? Hello. It is Sunday, <laughs> Sunday, Sunday. We're bringing you another episode of the Creative Burn. We're out here uh, on I-35. We can see that there's absolutely no traffic here at 10 o'clock in the evening. No down payment, no financing, <laughs> no credit checks. Uh, the scores today were zero to zero, zero to zero, and zero to zero, because no one's playing anything. <laughs> Thanks, COVID. Back to you, Bob. <laughs> the only voice I can do is kind of an Elmo voice. Yeah. I can't do it on the spot, though, so you guys have to do it. You can do it, right? <laughs> you're like, the one voice I can do, uh, I can't do while you're listening. <laughs> um, hey. Hey, CJ, what, what do you do with? So my sister, we figured out, so my sister recently moved to town, and we figured out, <laughs> weird cross-section there, she has really short arms because we've been playing a lot of card games, and she's like, can you hand me a card? And I realize it's happening all the time. So now it's the whole thing is like, well, I have short arms. Can't reach it. Can't reach the short arms. <laughs> Can't reach the cards. 
Um, but Elmo, that's okay. Some people have short arms <laughs> and they just, you know, um, have to learn to do that and you just have to help them. Helping is the magic phrase. Yay! Stupid short arm cabbages. <laughs> the goldfish doesn't like to. The goldfish is too in the park. <laughs> That's pretty good, man. That's not bad. Yeah. The best thing about it is like, you say words, but they don't really mean anything. So, like, that's, I feel like that's when I laugh the most. I'm like, Is that the one up at Joseph? Because he really don't come and let's know it. What the hell you saying, boy? <laughs> Dad. Hey, Dad. What's that boy saying on the microphone? What's he trying to tell us, Dad? I sell high-quality propane. <laughs> and we'll leave the light on for you. That's pretty good. Dad, that sounds really good. I've never seen two boys be so... Oh, that's not the word. Who's this guy just breathing into the microphone? <laughs> This beer is non-alcoholic. Hey, Hank, what are you doing there, man? Am I sitting down right now? Got two guys out there just didn't do shit. I'm talking about my boomhouse, man. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that was about 20 minutes of voices, and here we go. <laughs> Welcome to the Creator Burn. Drop some mic. <laughs> Don't do that. The mics are expensive. I got a question for you guys, and mm-hmm. this is kind of the week that I'm really having these discussions with myself. Mm-hmm. Totally lost my sanity. But what's the punishment that was most effective on you as a kid it changed a couple times so i hated tabasco sauce when i was younger like not even just the heat but the flavor if i was mouthy with my parents they would take a bottle of tabasco sauce make me hold out my tongue and they would dump it on my tongue did we talk about this no i don't know no (laughs) nope (laughs) so okay i love tabasco sauce by the way but i do now (laughs) that's why i stopped doing it because so like my youngest if he's mouthing off and says something you know like you're gonna get hot sauce if you keep talking like that but and then i realized like i might be robbing him of a life worth of enjoying tabasco sauce so i was like (laughs) okay we gotta figure something else out so did you have to actually oh yeah but like there was one time when i like cussed or something i think i said and they brought me into the kitchen. We're like, all right, Tabasco sauce. And I just went, nah, and I stuck my tongue out like an asshole. And they were like, okay. And they took me in the bathroom and put soap in my mouth instead. <laughs> and I was like, no. Nah. I was waiting for a bit like, they shot it into my eye. <laughs> so they just hit me with the bottle. No. <laughs> no. But then I got the soap and that was way worse. And I was like, why was I a dick? Oh, man. Yeah, I've had, I had the soap in my mouth before. That is not fun. I've never had soap in my mouth before. Yeah. There was like a time where I had an Atari that I would play sometimes that I loved. And I had this, uh, like, it was kind of basically Donkey Kong, but with like a kangaroo that had like boxing gloves. And it would get so frustrating. And I just kept saying like, damn it, over and over and over again, because I'd <laughs> screw up. And then it was like, my mom would be like, stop saying that word. And I'd be like, okay. And would be like, do, 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 do. Damn it! <laughs> it, just, it was so just like reactionary. It was like, okay, shut it off, get in here. And I was like, <laughs> was it a bar of soap or was it the? Uh, oh, it was straight up liquid soap. Oh, yeah. that's worse. It t- oh, took forever. <laughs> As the firstborn child, I wanted to always make my parents happy and not let them down. And so I was a really good liar. Sorry, mom and dad. <laughs> this is a. <laughs> 
this is a might be i don't know if they listen to this podcast or not i actually have never asked them to do it because i don't know this I, is like, where we find out yeah when I, they go hey, um, hey you ever listen to the podcast sorry. you're like oh yeah yeah i don't think you do because i think you would have been mad at like episode seven or whatever <laughs> yeah. this is man i had it so easy as a liar <laughs> and that's like the thing, like as a parent, how do you keep your kids from lying when really that's like the easiest way? Parenting's like born on lying. <laughs> <laughs> how is it born? Oh, I don't know. Well, like the first thing they lie about is Santa Claus. That's true. <laughs> like, it's true. <laughs> and then logic, you know, reaches your brain at like nine and you're like, wait a second. None of these facts add up. <laughs> Dude, parents lie to their kids all the time. <laughs> Birds and the bees. Oh, man. Yeah. Okay, so this episode is a benchmark for me because now that my oldest son, he's 14, and he actually is, he has a job now, which I don't know if is legal or not, and he's <laughs> been listening to stuff, so he's listening to podcasts. I'm like, so I go pick him up from work, and he's been working hard, man. So he's been listening to a lot of you know podcasts, and I'm like, so what are you listening to? He's like, oh, I listen to all your show. I'm like, oh, so he's going to hear this. <laughs> So this is the thing where I'm like, now I'm like, <laughs> the jokes that I had before are different because they have deeper meaning. So anyways, Caden, I hope you're having a good day at work. And uh, <laughs> this next part. Now you said his name. That's even worse. Okay. So there's one thing about the name Caden. It was super unique, just like John probably was before the Bible was written or something, you know, and, uh, <laughs> and, and Mary, um, is very popular too, but yeah, there's millions of Cadens, Cadens everywhere. You go to the park and you think your kid's in trouble like 20 times, like stop yelling at my kid. That's your kid. Oh, that's not my kid. <laughs> Anyways, going back around. So there is a point to talking about this punishment thing, because as a parent, I'm also experiencing this. How did I receive punishment? And then how do I administer punishment? And so the biggest, most effective thing that I've found is just no electronics. And so my kids, the younger two, have had electronics banned for the last week. But sometimes as a parent, when you punish your kids, you're punishing yourself. <laughs> if they don't play electronics, then they're walking around asking questions about, what am I going to do? <laughs> you know, And I'm like, I got to work. You know, So I don't know. And so it's like a big job to ground them. What am I going to do? I'm bored, I'm bored, I'm bored for like two days, right? Third day happens. And all of a sudden, like they stop asking. And it's just like a click. And I'm like are they awake? And so I went down and I'm like, what are you guys doing? And they're like, oh, we're writing a podcast. I was like, oh, that's perfect. That's great. Okay. I'm going to go work on my podcast. I'll see you guys later. And they kept doing it. And so like now they're totally obsessed with writing the script. Today's episode really kind of strikes home for me because Bill is a third generation sound guy. And the amount of things that, you know, go through like generation after generation of certain things are handed down. The idea that my kids are down there, they stay up with me. So like they're up till 4 a.m. in the morning writing their script and figuring out how to record the audio and edit down the audio. I guess I'm not sure where the connection is between the punishment and them being productive in that way and hoping that they don't ever become ungrounded. Because as soon as like the electronics come back on, they're going to be in that thing. I think the hard part is, is I think there's so much 
great stuff that happens when you're bored. I remember, like, I like I would just go outside. Like, you know, I know this sounds like super old. Like, I walked to school uphill both ways. But it was just like, there's nothing on TV. Saturday morning, you watch cartoons, and then it's like Soul Train came on. And it was like, all right, time to go outside. If there was cartoons all day, I probably would have sat there several more hours just watching TV. But as soon as it was done, it was like, all right, take breakfast back in the thing, get ready. And it's like, all right, I guess I'll, I'll go ride my bike over to my friend's house or whatever. Go over there, play some basketball. You know, mm-hmm. as soon as... It was like, I have to do something else. I thought of something else. So I think that's good. That kind of forced them to like, now they're being creative and creating something on their own that they're going to get so much more fulfillment out of probably than building a new building in Minecraft or something, you know? Mm -hmm. I agree. The worst thing you can have is a vice and something that makes you do the vice. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. People who are addicted to their phones. It's like, well... We're all got a phone. <laughs> so it's like once you take away that thing that allows you to pursue your addiction, then you go, okay, now I have to do something else. Yep. And I think they're looking at their productivity. It's a self-evaluation, I think, too, where I'm like, oh, man, I do spend a lot of time, especially now, where a lot of our information is coming from social media, good or bad. It's Mm-hmm. How do you find out what's happening now is you turn your phone and then, but I don't know, man, it's just so cool to see them writing their scripts. And we sat down and we talked about plot. We talked about all this stuff. Like, how do you make a good villain as a parent? Bill talks about this in the episode and this is what kind of brought it up. It's like, Davis, you asked Bill, what do you tell your kids? Do you suggest them to stay away from the business? And you know, he's like, I try and talk him out of it. And so I've been thinking about that. I'm full on insane in the creative field and want to just make my own thing and do like stuff like what we're doing. And it's a tough life. And we talk about that a lot in this episode. And so it's just, uh, I don't know, like it's, it naturally happens to where, you know, like the dad moment where you're like, oh, they're doing what I'm doing. If you guys want to make a podcast, we'll make a freaking podcast. Let's go do it. <laughs> you better not make a better podcast than me, okay? Oh, <laughs> 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 Whoa, oh, man, Dad, you know. put a bar of soap in your mouth. Come on. <laughs> no, that was, da- that was from Davis. That was from Davis talking to my kids. Why are you talking to my kids like that, man? <laughs> Whoa, dude, that's CJ's kids, man. Oh, sorry, Come what on. I meant to say is I'm very proud of you. <laughs> right. Yeah. Luckily, they have you there to teach them, and you're there to encourage them if they want to do it. I'm super excited to see what they come up with, Yeah. and I hope they write a part for me. Yeah. <laughs> I think they already have. This is a paying job, right? Like, this is a union gig? They won't this is a union the, gig? If there's any episode that would be on the side of cautioning people walking into this creative stuff, this is the show. Because it's a brutal business, and you're not going to have an easy road. This is going to be tough. But there's still people that can't do anything else. And so that's, I think, why we're here. You know, like, that's what we're doing. Our guest today is a third-generation sound guy following his grandfather, Roy Meadows, who was production sound for movies such as True Grit, Batman the Movie, Perry Mason, The Count of Monte Cristo, The Untouchables, and many others from the 50s and 60s. His dad, Frank Meadows, was location sound for movies such as Air Force One, The Spirit, Jaws, and TV shows like Little House on the Prairie, TJ Hooker, and many more. Bill is a post-production sound feature mix tech at Universal Studios in Los Angeles, California. He's worked on so many movies, there's really too much to list, so here's just a few. The Revenant, Straight Outta Compton, Atomic Blonde, The Devil Has a Name, Doolittle, Pokemon Detective Pikachu, 
Unbroken, Birdman, or The Unexpected Virtue of Ignorance, The Omen, Along Came Polly, A Beautiful Mind, and every single Fast and Furious, including F9 and post-production now. He is a pioneer in the sound world and has helped test cutting-edge technology such as Atmos and is a Pro Tools I.O. king, wrangling hundreds and even thousands of tracks for features playing around the world. Please welcome with me the envy of audio nerds worldwide, Bill Meadows. So, Bill, for Davis and I, and for obviously anybody listening who doesn't know exactly what you do, like, can you kind of at least just fill us in a little bit on generally kind of what you're doing day to day? The technical on the on the paper name is you know re-recording mix technician, which is a really fancy way of I don't know saying coal shoveler, you know. <laughs> If people are familiar with the music studio setup, like a second engineer who's the guy who's doing actual all the all the setup, all the you know, back in the day he would have been biasing out the machines, setting out the playback side, doing all the patching, putting out the mics. I'm the guy that makes okay. the mixers can just sit down and mix. Every bit of media that comes onto the stage goes through me first. Every bit of media that leaves the stage goes through me. I am the first touch and the last touch. <laughs> um, Look quite literally on on what happens on the stage, be it picture or sound. I'm wrangling, as CJ can tell you, hundreds of tracks, thousands sometimes of some of the bigger movies now. Uh, we're running multiple recorders. We do everything now, at least at Universal, in a full Atmos mix. When we start oh, wow. in Atmos, which requires a few tracks. I don't know how familiar you guys are <laughs> with uh, Atmos and post-production or Atmos period. Not other than just going and listening to it at the theater, really. Yeah. <laughs> you have, you know, your typical, there's beds and objects. So the beds are your typical stems, dialogue, music effects. And it could be, we run 7-1 because it makes everything downstream easier, but it can be 9-1 with the uh, overheads being a all the way from the back of the room to the front of the room, left, right, which is just oh, wow. the stupidest thing in my, to me. It's like, <laughs> because the whole point of Atmos is point source. Like mm -hmm. I can take, this sound, and I can put it in a very specific place. So what's the point then of having two arrays that go literally from the front of the room to the back of them? I don't get it. <laughs> it yeah. doesn't work for me. Luckily, it doesn't work for the guys I work for. because, And it makes everything, uh, creating all the masters downstream for delivery, uh, just a, a friggin' nightmare mm. when, you, when you use those uppers. We're running multiple recorders, mostly to handle all that downstream mastering and release format stuff that I was talking about earlier. Because, you know, we, <laughs> yeah, we mix it at most, but we're still releasing a two-track. You know, oh yeah <laughs> it's like so there's there's a little bit of kind of cram a lot of crap in there you know yeah from atmos to imax to 7151 two track and then all the uh foreign deliverable components that go along with it and that's a lot of what we're we're building towards and what makes my life a living hell is you know preparing all this media so that yes not only can these guys mix it but then becomes a usable element for final theatrical delivery and subsequently nice. home theater delivery as well. We do that at the end as well. Wow. So doing doing like the foreign stuff, are you then like getting, you know, the dubbed versions and stuff and you guys deal with all that too? Or do you send that to a Dutch post house or something like that? <laughs> Most of it for Universal at least is done in London. The only ones I've ever been a part of was uh, we did some Mandarin mixes. We did a couple of uh, legendary films. We did Pacific Rim 2 and we did a Skyscraper. Since they were legendary produced films, legendary is owned by a Chinese conglomerate. They prepared a 5-1 Mandarin stem, and we did use that. Here's the ME we created during all that mastering process. Yeah. Here's this Mandarin stem. Make it not hurt and go. <laughs> <laughs> so for the big stuff and the small stuff is Fast 9 or something like that. There's obviously a lot of elements going on and a lot of 
big sound design that really goes into it. Where do you feel like you kind of get to be most creative or just as kind of more enjoyable? Like is one just stressful and hard or does it like when you're in something like Fast 9, you get to create a little bit more or play with things? There's a lot more time on something like Fast 9 simply because of budget. Like on a, a massive action movie like that, all in, we may be on it eight weeks, give or take. But that eight weeks, it's kind of misleading because we're there seven days a week, 16 hours a day, sometimes longer. So there's a lot of hours crammed into it. You know, there, there's a definite creative element. There's the guys who have been working on the fast movies that they use as an example because they've got everything in them. You've got these guys that have been recording cars. They've been recording guns. They've been working on all this stuff for months ahead of it hitting the stage as well. So there's already been this massive, massive creative input to it. Now we're bringing it onto the stage and you've got these guys that are just, you know, the best in the world at making this movie massive and flying stuff all around and making it cool as hell, both from, you know, okay, here's this car and it's going all over the place, but also making the music sound cool. It's like, everybody thinks, I think that they're misled to think the music just there. It's like, man, if you listen to some of these modern mixes with the guys who know what they're doing, you'll hear components of the music moving through the room. There's just the fact of fitting all that music in with the effects, which is, that's a huge, huge deal. And usually the music wins because the music costs more money. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, you know, there's the creative element, but there's also trying to cram, to use one of my dad's favorite phrases, 20 pounds of shit to a 10 pound bag. <laughs> yeah. Which is what a lot of these movies are without destroying the listener. You know, it's like, oh, I still have to hear Vin Diesel mumble over machine guns and car screeches and this massive percussion score that's going throughout the entire thing. So there's the creativity yeah. of making the sound, but then there's also the creativity of blending the sound, which is fascinating. Even after almost 30 years of doing this, it's still fascinating to me. That's yeah. always one of my favorite uh, scenes in a movie is when people are in a club and you hear the music, you know, the music's super loud when the scene kicks in and then two people walk up and start talking to each other like, hey man, what are you doing here? And you're like... <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> <laughs> or there's the worst thing. The worst part of that is they'll, they'll make a square in the music. You know, it's like, okay, music's... You know, it's like, oh, God. You know, now, that, now you've got that distraction. To me, that's distracting yeah. as hell. It's like square holes. Right. <laughs> that, um, yeah. it, it's more... Pre you go back in time a little bit more. It's a little bit more prevalent. Now it's like we have the control. It's like... Especially with music, we're getting, you know, for a cue, you're getting 25, 7, 1 stems mm -hmm. from, the, from the session. So you have all this control. It's like, okay, well, that's, you know, whatever woodwinds, you're really fighting with the guns here, which is more important here. The guns or the woodwinds? Right. Guns, okay. Woodwinds, whoop, like maybe not dropped out, but you, you, you can take that component out or you can get it panned out so it's not sharing the same space. And like, ah, that's just fascinating. And, and it avoids the square holes when somebody's in the club screaming at somebody else and you don't have to subtitle it. Yeah. <laughs> Hats off to sound people. You can always say, you know, you can forgive bad cinematography and, and bad acting sometimes and stuff like that. But like, there's just things you can't forgive. And that and one of the big ones is always sound. Like, it's yeah. just the one thing. I mean, all movie making, television making, whatever you want to call it, it's storytelling. And if you can't hear the words, ah, man, most of them, you can't tell the story. I yeah. Mean, yeah, there's exceptions to the rule, but that's 90% of it, man. And 90% of it's conveyed with sound. Like, that's part of why music costs so much money on these situations and why it often wins is it's conveying an emotion as well. So it's all part of telling the story. Sometimes it's part of leading the audience around by their nose in some cases. <laughs> the element that I'm super interested in, there's tons and tons of questions that I have, but like for me, in my market, really the only way for me to mix a movie is to basically do almost every step of it. So it's almost like when I mix a movie, like you bring me on and I do everything from... I'll capture it on set. Then, you know, I'd bring it 
to the do the all the dialogue editing, do all the sound effects, or do all the sound design. Usually, I would never compose and do all of that. It seems like the composing takes just as long as the sound design would even do because a good sound design job will take some introspection and some almost the same way that a composer looks at a film. But can you give us kind of a contrast if there's somebody like me that's kind of doing like an all-in type deal compared to what is the scope and how many people are working on a movie that you would typically work on? Okay, so that's, you couldn't describe two more contrasting concepts, of course. There are some sound supervisors that will, they'll come on during production even, and they'll be feeding the director and the picture editor sound effects even then, and they'll follow it, and then they'll, they'll cut the whole thing, and then they'll mix the whole thing. That's a smaller percentage, of course. Typically, I mean, from seed to tree, as it were, the production sound teams, like three guys usually, that once they're done with the shoot, they will never see the movie again until it's in the theater. Then it'll come on now on a larger action movie. The sound editorial team is anywhere from, it'll start large and then shrink as it goes, which you think would be backwards, but it, it makes sense. It's six to eight people, typically. You have sound supervisors, sometimes two, depending on the scope of the film. You'd have a sound assistant that's going to be wrangling, kind of like the my counterpart, who's going to be wrangling all these bodies and all this stuff, all the dailies coming in. On a, on a Fast and Furious movie, you'd have three to four effects editors, and then usually two dialogue editors. There'd be one guy handling all the production and one person handling, say, all the ADR and group. You know, so there's so much material coming in, and then the schedules are, are rather compact. So you kind of have to throw what amounts to an army now. When I first started, when I was on MAG, sound editorial could be 25 people. You know, because oh, you're, you're dealing with physical units at that point. It's you know, not like mm-hmm. you're throwing 400 tracks up into a Pro Tools. Say when a conform comes in, it's just like, man, all hands on deck then, you know, gentlemen to your splicers. You know, now it's like, oh, 400 tracks, okay. Okay, that conform's done. As I'm still floundering to get my end done. Do you ever find yourself like someone sending you something that, you know, they were supposed to be working on, but when you got it, it wasn't just quite up to snuff and then you had to like go in and redo a whole bunch of work? Oh, a lot of times we've had that where it's it's not maybe not sometimes it's not up to snuff. We've definitely seen that. Mm-hmm. And then I'll be working on say reel two while the mixer's struggling through reel one because they both came in at the same time. Foley is a perfect example. It's all over the place. It's like it's 40 tracks wide. It's like, why is the Foley 40 tracks wide? Typical Foley session, 16 tracks. <laughs> so it's like, and stuff's all over the place. So he's ah, trying to juggle all this stuff. So I'm a, I'm a reel ahead trying to just do house cleaning. That's more like what we get. It's like, I'm not sitting there recutting reels. Well, I'm recutting from a house cleaning point of view or a sync point of view, not a, uh, oh God, I'm, I've got to pull sounds. That That's very rare. And then typically we will have an editor on stage who will be doing, you know, oh, the mixer requests. Oh, I, I need some more gravel off that tire. I need, no, that gunshot's not working. Or I need a, a different report or I need, you know, take your pick of what they could possibly want. So yeah, stuff does come in. You know, it's like anything, man. It's like even on something, you know, $200 million movie, doesn't mean you're going to get everybody batting at level, as it were. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, <laughs> it's just life. You know, somebody hired their buddy. Somebody gave some new guy a shot. And it's like, oh man, it's like, yeah, he got good stuff. His session prep is horrendous. It's like, mm-hmm. okay, yeah, you can cut good stuff, but you still have to you know, deliver it ready to work on. You know, that's a big problem, especially as the sessions have gotten gigantic. You know, session prep and a lot of that knowledge is questionable sometimes yeah do you ever get to have <laughs> meetings and like talk about a lot of what all right if this is the process we want to start at so then when it gets to me i don't have to go through all this all the time all yeah. the time especially on the bigger ones where it's like like i was telling cj the other day that you know it, it gets to a point 
where there's two ways of doing things. There's my way and the wrong way. And I'm telling you, your way is the wrong way because you don't understand that once it hits the stage, especially with the newer workflows, man, if it's not right, it's it's really bad because yeah. it's not like even just a few years ago, it's like you're handing me a Pro Tools session. Okay, it's just a session. Maybe it's got some bus outs. Maybe it's a one-to-one out. And it's like, you know, okay, you know, Foley's 1 through 16 are going to faders 73 through well, 86 or whatever it would be. Okay, that's cool. No problem. Now, when we're trading sessions back and forth, we're essentially trading the console back and forth. All that routing mm-hmm. for the console, all that routing for the recorder, all that routing for all their sends, all their chains, everything is in that session. So if you beef that session, holy cow, man, we got a problem. Yeah. You just basically spill the Coke on the, on the console, metaphorically. <laughs> <laughs> the bad Coke, with, not the good Coke. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not, the good, yeah. <laughs> not, not that Hollywood A. Gray stuff. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, the go-go powder. Oh, no. Sweet angel dust, sweet angel dust. This is crazy. On a side note, after... Almost 30 years of being in this silly business, I have never seen cocaine. Yeah. <laughs> I've seen people on it, but I have never actually seen the, the stuff. Me either. It's, it's one right of those back. points of pride. Yeah. Well, that's because in Kansas City, it's it's not coke, it's it's meth. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they are confused about <laughs> there's some different ingredients. So, so with that, what's one of the worst things that you guys have had to deal with? And how did you guys kind of handle it? Probably me. Well, like... <laughs> no, Dude, we didn't have time to do any of that with with yours and yours was fine we sat down and got right to work if i remember right you know, yep. it was actually pretty smooth once we got you know pro tools upgraded <laughs> we were working on unbroken angelina jolie world war ii movie mm-hmm. and that was the full that was the full example where it's just like oh my god this is so wide this is before we were using control surfaces we were still using the harrison mpc so it was like hey man this track goes to that fader so like i said it was just like oh man you've got 40 faders now in front of you instead of something nice and concise right in front of the mixer for him to work with and be able to work quickly. But just the name of this game is all speed. It doesn't matter if it's a $200 million movie or a $5 million movie or a $5,000 movie. You only have a finite amount of time. Yeah. yeah. Anything that slows down the process is costing money. It's costing time. It's wasting time that could be used creatively. It's using time that could be used constructively. If this takes us four hours do instead of an hour and a half, man, that's, that's, that's two and a half hours. We're literally never getting back. Yep. That time's gone. That's the biggest killer. We're just, our whole focus is it's, it's based on just keeping the, keeping the wheels turning, keeping yep. the gears grinding away. It's just like never stop, never stop, never stop, never stop. Everything I do in my job is based on, okay, as soon as, you know, we're done with process X, whatever it may be, you know, if we're just changing reels, it's like that real change has to be as fast as humanly possible. I need to have everything, all the I.O. checked out. I have to have every conform checked, whatever the recorders, everything that I can have ready to go has to be ready to go immediately. Because, yeah, you've got a stage that can be going for, I want to say, like the full tick rates, like around twelve or $1,500 an hour. Mm. That, but then you've also got attached to that, there's also a team of, of sound editors. They're on the clock. There's a team of picture editors. They're on the clock, and they're way more expensive than any of us. You've yeah. got music editors. But the hourly clock on a big feature film is... I don't know, $8,000 an hour at straight time. Wow. So it's like, we can't stop ever. It's just, it's, yeah. it's, it's an expensive, expensive process. Even though in the grand scheme of things, none of these numbers are exact. I, mean, I, I really, it, it's a sliding scale. Yeah, but but it, it's expensive. I mean, that's what it boils down to. Is it's expensive. It's it's a lot of money. Most importantly, it's time that you'll never get back. In the grand scheme of things, post production is cheap. We are the catering budget on a large scale, you know, film production. 
Mm. You know, even though it could be, everybody freaks out, oh, it's millions of dollars. It's like, man, that is literally the catering budget for, for production. Everybody just calmed down. You've got guys being fed for 16 hours a day on, yeah. on location somewhere. And you've got trucks and you've got a massive production crew, probably now 100, 100 guys. That's a lot of food. Six, seven yeah. days a week, off-site. <laughs> I, just, I just love it. When everybody says that you know, post-production sounds expensive, it's like, no, we're a hell of a value for what you get. Yeah. Yeah, and we were kind of talking about that with Tony, our guy we were just talking to, is understanding the cost and knowing what you're worth and how to really convey that idea of this is what you're paying and you're not just paying for the hours, you're paying for all the training and everything that I've gone through to get here and to be this way. Yeah, it's, it's like anything. You're, you're paying us maybe a premium so that you can get more done. That's the way I've always looked at it. And it's yeah. simplistic, mm-hmm. but I think it's pretty accurate. It's like we can give you in an hour what some other guy might take sides. Yeah. Both from experience and you know just the skills, the skill sets we, we have. Man, my skill set is limited. I've been doing the same damn thing literally my entire adult life. I don't know how to do anything else, but yeah. damn it, I think I do it pretty well. <laughs> do you find that studios would rather save time over money or vice versa? It depends on what minute you ask them. In the thick of it, they'll throw money at it. Mm-hmm. doesn't matter. doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. But man, as soon as the bill comes due and everything's calmed down, it's like, why did we spend this much again? Like, yeah, oh, you guys are killing me. <laughs> like, dude, I didn't want to be here for 20 hours straight. I didn't want to be here for, you know, whatever, you know, 40 hours straight. I've yeah. done 46. I think, I think is my, oh, my record. 46, it's, not leaving, not leaving the not, And my longest stretch was on fast six. I did 141.3 hours in one pay period. And it's, sucked it's uh, it was i think i remember you being i saw some facebook undercover little like i'm still here checking like checking on you like are you okay did the catheter hurt (laughs) (laughs) seriously (laughs) well like i only live about 12 miles from the studio and when these shows which is now at least once a year this happens they'll put us up at the hilton or the sheraton on the hill universal which Mm. i can walk to in 15 minutes even though I only live 12 miles away because they don't want us driving anymore because it's, they, they know, they know what they're doing to us. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, every big movie we do now, there's at least one 24 hour day. I, I don't get it. It's just. Now, as far as what you guys are doing, are you guys typically, you guys are talking about being basically an hour. Are you running at an, an hourly rate? Or are you guys a day rate? Typically, or like, what are you guys doing? Thank God we're at an hourly rate. Okay. Thank God we, we, we have a, a pretty good union that has got us pretty good terms. And then, you know, yeah. even though I've worked at Universal my entire life, I'm still available. I can still negotiate my own price. And luckily, they, they, they pay me above scale. So I'm doing okay. <laughs> when, the, when the pain really strikes, it's yeah. like, okay, this sucks, but Thursday is going to be cool. Yeah. <laughs> Although I will, it's like people just start telling you, think about the money. It's like, man, I can't think about the money because if I think about the money, it's too much already. I just want to go home. I just want to have mm-hmm. a peanut butter and jelly sandwich yeah. at home. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's such a contrast in seeing a way to balance relationships. You know, I think we've all, you know, we're all in relationships and figuring out how that's a whole nother probably episode, I think. 
It's just <laughs> how to not be killed by your significant other would be. I don't even think there's a trick to that, man. It's just like, it's, you know, everybody's chemistry is different on that one. It's like my dad, who was a production mixer, he's on wife number five right now. You know, I'm on wife number one and plan on staying that <laughs> yeah. way. And there's a lot of guys that have been married since they were 20 years old who are, you know, sneaking up on 60. There's just as many guys that seem like they're on wife number three. You know, I, yeah. I, that's such a weird, there's no trick to that. There's no chemistry. There's just, Lucky and unlucky, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I've been married for just a little bit, but like we were together a long time. And part of a conversation we always had was just like, hey, this is kind of the life I lead as a as a freelancer in this business. If we are going to get married and stuff like that, know that, you know, obviously I'm not going to neglect you, but that this is part of what you're buying into. 100%. So I think just you... It you know it's like signing a contract with your friends working on a gig. It mm-hmm. it's it's not the the most fun conversation to have, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but it's so incredibly important to do it way early than to be almost there or be into it. And then she's like, "Oh, I thought you know then you would find a job where you worked forty hours a week, nine to five or something." It's like, yeah, no, I we never talked about that. Yeah. <laughs> like, you understand that I'm insane in the brain. <laughs> I'm going to. And you know, that whole, cause I'm like, I kind of am, cra- I am crazy. I I've convinced myself I'm crazy. Something, something about me, uh, the way that I'm built is not right. <laughs> <laughs> but, but you see CJ, because you recognize you're crazy. It means you're not. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> I just gotta write a book. Crazy, write crazy a book people don't know. They're crazy. <laughs> well, I'm lucky in that, that, uh, my wife is very, She's a uh, acts of service love language. When I'm in trouble, I just start saying I'm sorry, even if I don't know what's going on. And I'm teaching my kids this too. I've got three boys. <laughs> I'm like, okay, when you're in trouble, you say you're sorry and you start cleaning. And you just keep cleaning. <laughs> and eventually it goes it away. <laughs> it goes away. <laughs> you know, finding those quali- finding those love languages and figuring that out, that almost yeah. is like the perfect thing you could I always chalk it up to like I didn't sign up for this class. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like when you get into something, you're getting into it always with an expectation. Even though most life you should have very low expectations to no expectations of anything. When you get into a relationship with someone and you're putting it all out on the table of like, this is what life's going to be like. We might have our days where I'm at home because I have some time off, or I'm going to be working at home, or I'm going to be gone for like a week to a couple months to whatever. And when you throw that into a relationship, like you've already figured out your system and then you throw it into the relationship, it kind of comes to that moment where it's like, oh, I didn't sign up for this class. You know, I was, and I, this isn't what I thought it was going to be. And I've been, I've had plenty of those relationships where uh, a girlfriend was, you know, being an actor and stuff like that. A girlfriend would be like, oh, oh, that's what it's like. You're going to have to like go out of town a lot to like go do this, or you're going to have a girlfriend on set, fake girlfriend or whatever. And then it's like, you could see that kind of those wheels start to turn and you're like, ah, you weren't ready for that. <laughs> yeah, you, yeah. you weren't ready for this. <laughs> oh, wait, you have to work on 4th of July weekend? Yeah. It's like, yeah, yeah, I do. <laughs> Unfortunately. Yeah. But the week before and the week after, right? I don't have much to do. We can hang out then. <laughs> 4th of July, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah when, my, when my wife and I first started dating, I was on, of all things, Goldmember, the Austin Powers movie. Oh, like, yeah. Oh, there's no money on that. Yeah, there was a, there's no time. It's like, yeah, we were we ended up working six, seven days a week. And it was just like one of the earlier conversations we had was like, it's not always like this, but it can be like this and it can be yeah. worse. To your guys' point, we got it out of the way early. Mm-hmm. And now mm-hmm. 
now she's just a, a war, you know a war bride right. <laughs> yeah, post production widow <laughs> I'll see you in September have fun in your Fast and Furious movie <laughs> well, there's, there, there's a lot of like like when we get the rooms it comes up out of nowhere sometimes it's like okay yeah. we've been working till 10 this is this is manageable uh, whatever this sucks but uh, at least I'm going home and then one day all hell breaks loose take oh, your yeah. pick why it's different every time Mm-hmm. Uh, hey, can you pack the bag? How many days? I don't know. Five days? <laughs> I don't know, man. Yeah. Yeah. I get home and bag's waiting for me and off I go, you know, off to war. Yeah. <laughs> off to sea, I guess would be a better analogy. It probably doesn't help when you have to listen to Vin Diesel keep saying, family, family. We're a family. That's got nothing after you've been listening to Breaking Glass for like an hour and a half. Oh, yeah. <laughs> a machine gun fighter or a car crash or take your pick of things that just make your shoulders come up around the tail. Oh, God damn it. My life's a wreck. <laughs> Transient madness. It's like, wait, people want to do this? People want to yeah. sit in a room and where it's constantly like 90 SPL or 105 SPL. It's like, yeah, if you guys want into this, this is the reality. <laughs> so let me roll into this. And, and CJ, I know you're wanting to jump into some of this too. So if you want to ask this a little differently, but you were talking about dad being in it and grandpa being in it, mm-hmm. right? right? So you're at least third generation <laughs> uh, in sound. Uh, so we were kind of wondering, like, as far as like, I know one of big CJ's big thing was just kind of like wanting to like talk to his kids about, hey, what's your passion? What's your thing? Like, you don't have to just do a nine to five. You can follow this thing. So for you, do you feel like the, the sound thing was in your bones? Did uh, you kind of follow into it because you were you know just seeing what dad and grandpa were doing or kind of how did that lead into doing what you're doing and picking that avenue i can admit that it was nothing i was looking for and i did fall backwards into it um i i can't say this like i was born into this and this (laughs) is you know this is my boy like no i I was playing music you know I, i graduated high school i was in a band i didn't know what was going to happen i did really well in school but we were not very well off. So I knew I couldn't afford to go away to college or anything like that. The other thing is my dad and grandfather both in the Navy. So I told my dad, like, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm seriously considering it. I don't know what's going on. You know, I'm in a band, big deal. You know, maybe I'll just go in the Navy like you and grandpa. It's like, the fuck you will. And he was <laughs> violently against that. He just like, I'm going to get you an interview at Universal. The guy who runs the sound department there owes me a favor because his, that guy's wife, it's all so interrelated oh, and yeah. incestuous. It's fair. Even now, it, it's mellowed a lot, <laughs> but it's bad. It, it was really bad when I started still. The director of the Universal Sound Department, had, his wife had been my dad's boom operator years prior. And so he got me an interview and I, you know, I was like one of those, okay, you, you start next week. I'm like, what? <laughs> you know, but I mean, I started out doing grunt work. I was taking food to the stages. I was cleaning film. I was degaussing mag when that was still a thing. I was working in what was called geographical separation which is uh, cleaning up old tracks that were falling apart so that they could get mm. one more copy off them and they'd send them to salt mines in Pennsylvania to, get to be stored for uh, long-term preservation. Mm. It was pretty kind of cool oh, wow. stuff. Yeah. So I, this was not, I mean, like I said, I was just aimless, I guess would be a good word. <laughs> and then, you know, like I said, I did a couple of years of grunt work and doing some better stuff. The band did pretty well for a while, went on tour. It, 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 I had money coming in at 18, 19 years old where I could go play music, which is rare. Yeah. What was the, what was the band name? 
There's a band called Meal Ticket. It was a ska oh, punk nice. band. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, we, went, we went all over hell and back, put out a couple of records. Did okay, did okay for ourselves for, you know, just some scumbags from the San Fernando Valley. <laughs> and then, so yeah, I totally fell backwards into it. I think the main reason I did well, though, speaking of the, the family element, was the one thing my dad impressed upon me was like, just remember, don't fuck this up because you're going to make me look bad and you're going to make your grandfather look bad. Who had been long dead, but it was just that that whole, I got the weight of like, you know, our family name and you know, all this nonsense. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I guess I didn't screw it up. And then, and then I just kept, by virtue of never do a bad job well, like I was saying earlier, I kept moving up. There was, there was nothing like, oh, I went to, oh, I have this drive. It's just like, no, you show up on time. You're kind of figuring it out. Okay. And it's like, duk, 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 right up to my, you know, my, my long journey to the middle, which is not mm-hmm. complete. <laughs> but as far as I've, I've counseled both my kids to stay out of it. It's getting to be kind of an ugly business. And as the crews shrink and the hours go up and the pay goes down for, for a lot of the, a lot of people, especially, you know, mm-hmm. I'm sure you guys feel it. It's, it's hard to make a living. I mean, I yeah. see guys who've been doing this 20 years that are having a hard time, you know, guys that are experienced, maybe they're not that good. Maybe that's the catch. I, it's hard. I, you know, I'm not here to say that one way or the other, but it's, it's not, I'm not telling you guys anything you don't know. It is a bitch to get a foothold in this business. So do you recommend to your kids that they kind of stay out of the business in general or just out of sound for the definitely, most part? Definitely out of sound. You know, we talk about this at work a lot that like, mm-hmm. I'm 46. The guys I work with are, you know, 10 years older than me. And that I'm probably, if I'm lucky, I might be one of the last generation of people to actually work an entire career and retire from this business, you know, yeah. in the, in the, tr- in the traditional flow of right. like, Oh, you got your 30 years, you got your 60,000 hours, you're 59 years old, whatever, you know, all the, the weird little union benchmarks so that you can get the hell out. But you know, I might be one of the last ones. Even talking to my dad, he says, he's convinced I'll be the last generation to, to re- do that whole run where you can get the amount of hours that you actually need to retire, maintain health insurance, you know, all that good, all right. that good stuff that nobody likes to think about this. They want to talk about passion, but passion's great, but you can't eat passion. You know, and passion doesn't do you shit, you know, when you got, you know, got to have your tonsils out or break your bones like I'm always doing. <laughs> um, right. So it's, it's, a, it's a tough, and I, it's a tough call. And I, I feel like I'm being Debbie Downer to an extent, but, you know, anybody who's watching this, it's, yeah. man, it's, it's a tough road to hoe. You know, there's, yeah. there's a lot of yeah. people who want to do it. And there's a, and 99% of those people don't understand what they're signing up for. Yeah, and that's and that's important to know. So it's funny that you mentioned the tonsils because I just had that surgery a month ago. Oh, oh geez, and, Man, you, and you it waited. sucked. Yeah, and it I sucked. had it when I was five. And it sucked then. So I can only imagine them being aware. Yeah. Aware. I was already used to the quarantine before it happened. <laughs> this is all to you. Yeah. yeah. I'm like you guys catch up to me. Exactly. You're you're ahead of the curve, man. You're a trendsetter, <laughs> an influencer. <laughs> Do you think it's hardship on the people getting into it because of the lack of money in the business? Or do you think it's the people that they have the money, they're just stingy? Stingy, it's, you know, that's a little general, but yes, nobody wants yeah. to pay for anything. It's, you have people setting the budgets who are pretending it's their money a lot of times. So it's just like, man, no, this, you have a blank check from the studio, dude. This isn't your cash. And we're not trying to rip you off. It's not like uh, we're trying to charge you for a Saturday and we're staying home. You know, if we're here on a Saturday, we're here on a Saturday. And we're taking 30 minute lunches. If we're taking lunches at all, you're getting free time out of us half the time. Yeah. So it's like, you know, ah, you know, yeah. 
Do you feel like the unions have been important when it comes to that kind of stuff? I think unions have been very important. I, I know I, yeah, everyone's got a different opinion on unions, um, mm-hmm. but working in, in an industry that is so, f- trying to think of a nice way to put this, that doesn't give a damn about the amount of hours you work. Mm-hmm. It's like, yeah, the, will the unions ever make it so I'm not working 100-hour weeks for four weeks in a row on Fast and Furious, you know, 17, God damn it. Um, <laughs> no, they're Come not. On, but they're, but, but they're going <laughs> to make sure I get paid for every hour I'm there. Which, yeah. you know, if, if I decide, oh, I'm going to cut my lunch break short because it's going to make my life easier to get whatever tasks done, that's on me and I, I, I can shoulder that. But they're making sure that I get paid properly. That alone, that and I have the, the greatest health insurance known to man right now until we catch up with the rest of the civilized world. You know, yeah. I, I'm, we are ridiculously well taken care of on that. So it's like, hey, I'm, if I'm lucky and I, I, I go to the same time, I know I'm going to die on a bed. So I got that going for me. I got that to look forward to. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I think that's really important to know, even when you are doing this, like, hey, I'm going to go for my passion and, you know, screw everything else. And it's like, you know, IRS doesn't care what you're doing. They're going to ask for their taxes. You got to know how to pay those. Like there are typically there are more things you have to do to do the follow the passion thing to make it work than you ever do going to do a nine to five. My wife hates it now that we do our taxes because before it was like super simple. She had one job, no things was like, here you go. Thank you. I'll take this check. And now it's like, okay, now we got to spend two weeks figuring everything out. But that's important to know going into it, that there are these other little things that you have to worry about or figure out on your own (laughs) unless you are lucky enough to get in the union or do some of that kind of stuff that does help with that but it's not an easy road or it's not just a lucky road even though it is the the lucky road kind of thing but there's a lot of this other stuff that's gonna suffer like we talked about like family stuff friend stuff missing things because hey sorry this is when this is working i won't have anything to do in december but right now i have to do this so that you'll have christmas (laughs) you know I think it's important, even though it it feels sometimes like a bummer, that it's important if you figure out those other things earlier, they make things easier later. If you can start to work through that adult stuff, the crappy side that you don't want to deal with, you know. Yeah, the shortcoming that people come into this industry with, to me, is they think it's something out of a movie. And it's not. It's, It's a movie business. Yeah. It's like even if you're only dealing with like I, I like that I can I can say this phrase only a ten million dollar movie. It's still a business. It still has a budget. It still has a finite amount of money, and people are going to expect things from you. There's no like I'm going to experiment. I'm going to do this. It's like no, you're going to get the fucking job done, man. You're going to hurry, yeah. and that's a lot of it. And a lot of people they come into it thinking it's going to be a Disney movie where the, you know the, the, I'm going to talk to the animals and I'm going to be an artist. <laughs> it's like no, dude, you're going to be you're going to be throwing shit at a wall all day long. You're going to be told yeah. what to do by somebody above you who's being told by somebody above him what to do. You know, yeah. we are, you know, it, it is a definite shit runs downhill industry and it bums so many people out. And to your point, it's like, yeah, five years in, there's a lot of guys who are just like, screw this. It's like, no, this is, this is a, it's a great industry to work in. Yeah. The hours suck, but the pay is great. Even mm-hmm. at the worst, worst situations it, at our level. The pay is great. You know, I, I I feel for any freelancer. It's it's something I skipped right over. So I I I, I can't mm-hmm. I can't even I can't 
relate you know what you guys go through it's it's just got to be mind-boggling but difficult from time to time one of the things with especially in our market so there's different you know there's obviously the la market and the the bigger movie market that um you're operating in like for my market if i were to join a union i would be hurting for work basically like there's nobody you know if i was a union location sound guy or whatever i would have a very limited amount of things that i could do Let's say that we are talking to some people that, you know, they understand what we're talking about, like the Debbie Downer stuff, but they've decided to take the pill, the disillusion pill or whatever. Like, what would you say to somebody like that? And just because you're not in a union doesn't mean that you can't collaborate or go and talk to the other people in your industry. So if you're new, it's really your responsibility to find out what the industry standard is on that rate and to try and protect that as much as possible, not just for you, but for the whole workforce that's working with you. Because as soon as you start to dip on some of that, and we all have passion projects or what it, that's kind of what we're talking about. I think it's important to, even if you're not in a union, to still have an open communication with your colleagues about what you're charging and, and try and keep some normalcy to that process. Hundred percent. Yeah. As soon as you, you, you start, you know, undercutting the next guy to get job A, job B is going. Someone's going to undercut you. And next, it's kind of like uh, what was it, about four years ago? All those visual effects houses when they all like, okay, this. What I God, I wish I could remember the name. They won an Oscar, and they were already filing for bankruptcy. Yeah, and they were going under because it's like that is the most cutthroat undercutting. Screw the next guy business ever. And it's like you guys are now you're doing jobs where you can't keep the lights on. And now you're out of business. It's like, great. You got that one gig and you're never going to get another one because there's a padlock on the door now because you, you got shut down. I, I, I couldn't agree more. It's like as much as this seems like playing with computers, it's a very important job for, for a creative from a creative standpoint. I mean, the simplest thing is like the dialogue doesn't sound like that, guys. Dialogue sounds like shit. You know, and a guy yeah. like CJ fixed it. Or a guy like my guy, John, he fixed it. He made it so you can understand what he's saying. It was a lot, and it was a lot of work. There was a guy who got paid, hopefully, a reasonable rate to, at least in the most terrible situation ever, record that production sound. Those guys are doubly hosed. Once again, CJ, perfect example. Nobody nobody cares about the sound guy. <laughs> they want to get the shot. You know, fuck your boom. It's like, hey, man, this is going to cost you later. There's a lot of guys doing great, very difficult work who need to be compensated for it at all levels. I, I couldn't agree more. And yeah, the more you undercut the next guy because you think, oh, I'm going to get this job and they're going to hook me up on the next one. It's like, <laughs> no, they're not. And the quality of work just goes down, 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 down. And you're hosing good people out of work and you're hosing the product at the end of the day. It's like my cynicism has got to the point where I do just look at this as the product because that's mm -hmm. what it is. It's like people can tell you it's their dream or their passion project or like this is the movie I've been working on for six years or this is the whatever. It's like, that's great. It's a product. And we want to give you the best product possible. And we're going to try and help you not screw yourself, yeah. which I think is a big part of what all of us should be doing for people who, especially on the sound end. Well, to a degree, we're all salespeople. And, yeah. and, and you know what I mean? In a sense, like we're all trying to sell ourselves, whether we're actors, directors, writers, sound, you know, sound people, like we're all selling some ourselves to get something. Yeah. You know, and so there's something about that when you talk about, you know, it's, it's, it is a business and that's the thing. That's that show biz part. It's a business yep. and 
you got to look at it that way. And if you're undercutting yourself at all times, like how many car dealerships undercut themselves and then go under, you know what I mean? Yeah. Or, or anything really. A car dealership. Yeah. They can undercut themselves, but they're going to make it up on service. We don't right. have service in our yeah. industry. <laughs> we, we only have, we have that initial yeah. payment and that that's all we get. Right. And after yeah. that, boom, you know, we're done and we're going to be hosed. It's, it's, it's so short-sighted when people do that. Yeah. It's like, you know, you just screwed one guy and you screwed yourself. You yeah. Know, you just, you literally yeah. just took very careful aim at your own foot and pulled the trigger. Well, and yeah. CJ, you've done this sometimes too, where it's like, okay, I can throw you a deal. I'm not going to undercut myself, but I'm going to throw you a deal where it's like, instead of charging you these big amounts here, I'm going to mash it all together, but I'm also going to handle your post. You're getting double the work, but you're paying me a little more, but you're still getting double the work from me rather than having to find so many individual people who are going to give you all these b- different prices. Yeah. Part of that too is knowing that the location audio is going to be good. If I know for a fact that the recording on set's going to be good, like I'll take on a post job a lot faster. Whereas like the same length of film, whether it's a, you know, an hour long, you know, so much of that work depends on the capture. And that's really why we got to pay, like we got to give honor where honors due on the location guys because they get screwed. I think they show up and it's an impossible situation so many of the times that, you know, you can tell, I mean, you can see a lot of times like there's a frustration there because it's almost like there's no perfect job, you know, and there's no, it's always a problem that you're fixing. It really is trying to figure out how to choose what you're going to be doing. And if you're in it, you're going to take a beating for it, you know, And, and I think even listening to us talk, it's almost like we have a little bit of a tired sound because we've done it for years. And it there is that side of just you're in something for so long that you're like, listen, you got to understand what you're getting into. I always come back to the saying, it's not the people that make the laws that change people's minds or change culture. It's the people that make music and the people that make art. You know, that's where you can change society through art. And so this is kind of the expression. And this is where the business of Whatever, like Fast and Furious is doing to our culture, I don't know. But we're all family. Yeah, <laughs> it's bringing us closer. And art is supposed to be the, the stuff that really pushes, you know, changes, and it asks the hard questions, you know, and it exposes, like the, you know, the documentaries and stuff that have come out, and just really, you know, change the way we look at stuff. And so I don't know. It's a. It, that's the other side of it too, is the delivery of stuff that can really change the course of history. I mean, traumatic outlook, but whatever. Fact, the fact that now we're, we're in a golden age of being able to do that. I think of, you know, even when I started, when it was still analog and mag, and like you couldn't have an independent documentary maker. There was almost no such thing. If they made it, nobody saw it. But now, you know, there's thousands of them made a year. They can, from the YouTube level to actual distribution and the, the tools that are, are in place now. To make that possible, it's, it's fantastic. Yeah, you know, there's it's, people it's, making it's, weekly stuff on YouTube that you know, like stuff that like Vice turned into or whatever that mm-hmm. was able to do things that other big conglomerates that just can't move as fast or wouldn't take chances because it's like, well, we got to protect, you know, the name right. of our company by jumping in here or whatever. That some of the others like, I'll jump in there and do it, <laughs> you know, and they're making some some crazy stuff. Bill, is there ever a time that you uh, you think to yourself, I want to work on an art house low budget film because you can get back a little more of that artistic value? I'm able to. 
every year I mix a, a few documentaries, a few student shorts, be it ones that I get turned on to by people I've done stuff for in the past. And, you know, all those happen after hours on the weekend. So that's the closest I can give back is you know, I can bring some guy who just shot a 40 minute documentary on a, a trail in the Sierra and I can bring him into the Hitchcock theater and I can have my buddy who works with me on all this stuff help me, you know, go out and he, he does all these great location sounds, winds, Yes, you know, an amazing package of that kind of stuff. And we can take this little thing that's otherwise would have just been YouTube quality schlock and we can turn it into something really nice and we can help this guy. I'm using a real example here and we helped him move up to, he just did a feature level documentary that, that I mixed. So that, that's, that's, the, that's the closest I can give back in my current setup, you know, and still, you know, feed my kids. <laughs> I know I'm going to be working on fast and furious or whatever you know schlocky action that's great but when i have the time i'm able to do these smaller i don't want to say more intimate that sounds douchey but you know just you know the, the, <laughs> the, the smaller projects and that's as far as i can take my knowledge what i know and, and the resources i have that the studio has graciously provided me with to move somebody else down the line a little bit so that that's that's been my my take on on that angle for the last several years it's something to think about of like how much time and energy you spend making the money doing you know doing the thing the systematic things that feel like in your business but they just feel systematic like for me it's it's commercial work you know when i work on commercials i, I i'm happy i'm getting the paycheck i'm happy to be doing the work but it's not filling my soul you know what i mean oh. but it does pay me to then take that time the next week to be like, you know what, I'm not making money on this next thing, but this is feeding me. And that's where yeah. I go. This is why it's worth it. A hundred percent. That commercial work gives you that knowledge to elevate, you know, it's, it's all practice. Yeah. You know, so now it's like, okay, I'm doing this. So I'm always, I'm always up to my elbows in it. I'm always working on it so I can always improve and I am improving. And mm. you know, I get to the thing I want to do. That's going to make me feel like, oh God, I'm not just pouring myself out you know i can give it you know what i mean you can do that too but it's (laughs) i mean beard wise man (laughs) Uh, i was gonna say bill like so do you ever you know like usually when people do a job for a while and we kind of have this idea of you get faster at your job i've recently kind of experienced almost a backward trend for some of my work because i think i'm starting to realize you know, five years ago, I would take on a feature film and be like, yeah, I can get it done. You know, give me two weeks and I'll have it all done. Now I'm like, I need at least a month. Yeah. You know, because I think there's something about once you do a job so long, you notice and you understand what really has to take. Like, so the dialogue that was fine five years ago won't fly today, you know? And, and so do you experience that with uh, stuff that you work on? The phrase we use is you don't know what you don't know. I can't tell you how much time on stage is spent talking about exactly that. Yeah, there's stuff that I didn't even know how to do five years ago that I can do now. You know, the possibility of doing it didn't even exist five years ago, be it from a tool or, you know, take your pick. But, oh, no, everything takes longer because, yeah, the stuff that you would let slide because you just simply, oh, it wasn't just good. It was good enough. Mm -hmm. And maybe at that point in time, that, that was the extent of your toolkit. And now it's not. And so now you're going to dig, 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 because you can. Yeah. You're going to make it better. 100%. Couldn't agree more. I mean, there's, there's of course, projects, and I'm sure you guys all run into it, where sometimes it is not just good, it's good enough, because, oh, I, I only have two days to do this, three days to do this. And you're just, you know, mm-hmm. hammer down, throttles wide open. I, I, I couldn't agree more, CJ. It's just, you, you become too aware 
as you as you get trained, you hear what's not right anymore. You know, where where it used to be a ten percent window, now it's a two percent window of acceptability. Mm. So it's mm-hmm. like, oh man, now I now I need to get it here, or I'm just not willing to let it out. Yeah. Well, it's kind of like we got to that point too, when when we heard it good, we can't hear anything less than that. Precisely. As filmmakers, once you make that product, it's like, well, I can't take a step back. <laughs> you know, it's kind of like once uh, the red came out, it's like everyone was shooting like, oh, well, once we saw what a red looked like, now that's all I want to accept as like my cinematography. It's like, you know, I can make this movie really good on this like not red camera. Mm-hmm. You're going to get everything that's top notch, but it's like you saw the digital quality of what a red could do, and now you don't want anything other than that. <laughs> but like I said, even beyond that, it's just like I know it can be better, and I know yeah. how to make it better, yeah. and I'm going to do it, and I can't not let myself do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, no, I, yeah. I, yeah. And you see the guys now, even like the, the mixers I work for, it's like, holy cow, why are they taking so long on this? And it's exactly that. It's like, where they could get it within with the, for those guys, where they used to be able to get it to ninety five percent, now they want it ninety eight percent. Something that you know, most of us schmoes, you know, even myself included, when I go to a theater, I don't know, I don't know where it started, so I don't know where it got to. Mm-hmm. But you know, mm-hmm. that that poor bastard who's on stage, who's just like, my God, this is almost there. This is almost there. You know, sometimes it's futile. Sometimes you know, the 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 other end of that is they you get the blinders on and you're like i'm gonna make this better i'm gonna make this better i'm gonna make this better and you're like focusing on a syllable or like a tick or whatever the anomaly whatever you're trying to fix may be and you spend way too much time on it and then you take a step back and you roll through it and you're like oh my god i destroyed it i ruined it this is horrible because you've lost perspective yeah. That happened. You know, that's the other end of that in that pursuit of perfection. And that's, I think that's where the slowness might come from too. It's just like in that pursuit of perfection, you probably could have just let it go. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and now you've handcuffed yourself a little bit as well, or not handcuffed. You yeah. can always go to command Z as your friend. You know, just undo, 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 undo. Oh, there's 45 minutes of my life. I'm never getting back. Right. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes you, you dig into it and it's like, there's gold there. Yeah. Yeah. What advice would you give somebody that's kind of getting started or getting into doing this early Oof. that you wish you would have known earlier or just, you know, that little bit, the thing that helped, you know, like that, like, uh, don't, don't do that for this part or like, you know, you got to do those because then you'll know that's not, that's not the time to do it later, you know, kind of thing. You never know how far too far is until you've got there. You have to break it. Failure is part of success. And it's cheese ball to say, but it is a hundred percent true. Yeah. Until you've broken it, you don't know that it was okay you know, here, and then I broke it. Yeah. You know, I went too far. I firmly believe you you won't know how to fix it until you break it. <laughs> and yeah. um, like in, in our industry, and CJ and I were ta- touching on this briefly last night in the conversation, it's noise reduction. Man, there's nothing you can do to totally ruin a track than do too much noise reduction. It just sucks the life out of it. It just makes it sound horrible. Mm. But until you've made it sound horrible... You don't know how to work the tool. You don't know where you know where that limit is of too much. Yeah, and you, so you have to experiment. Anybody who's coming into any of this stuff at any level, you have to experiment. You have to break it, but you also have to understand that you're going to break it. You know, yeah. not get frustrated. I mean, I, I see that with my kids. It's like if they don't get it right the first time, it's just like ah. And I know I was the same way when I was a kid, and it's as part of growing up is realizing that, like I said, failure is part of the process. 
Mm-hmm. And for people getting in, it's just to build on everything we've said, you know, that it's not going to be rainbows and puppy dogs. It's going to be a lot of hard work. And once again, you don't know what you don't know. So it's to use baseball as an analogy. Some kid goes from college into the minor leagues and he was hot shit in college. And now everyone's just as good as him. Mm-hmm. So if you were hot shit at full scale, full sale university or whatever, you know, audio school that you went to, it's like, man, sorry, if you were hot shit there, you're nothing here. We've got 40 guys like you and a hundred that are better than those 40. Mm-hmm. So it's, you got to understand that you're, you are starting at the bottom. Yeah. There's no better place to start. Cause if you learn it, you know, incrementally, I've been very fortunate. I came in when it was still analog and the whole digital revolution happened when I was in my mid twenties. So I learned that stuff all glacially. And as it came out, it was hard as hell, but I got to learn it at a very nice rate. Now, you know, the kids, the kids these days, you know, you're getting thrown into the deep end right off the bat. There's a lot to know. Man, like I said, at 46 years old and doing this my entire life, I'm you never stop learning this because every year it changes. Be it a software patch or a technique or a new mastering process, you're never going to know it all. And that's a hard pill to swallow for a lot of just human beings in general. It's like you're going to get to a point where you think you've, you should know it all by now. It's like, dude, you don't. I was joking. It's like, man, I shouldn't be having these problems now. I've been doing this forever. It's like, no, you You've learned different ways to do it. Mm-hmm. You've learned better ways to do it. And sometimes that slows down the process at first. Do you yeah. think sometimes uh, competition plays a role in that? Of like how many people are in the industry now versus how many used to be? To double down on even that, it's a combination of how many people are in the industry and how much everything has shrunk. Mm-hmm. Like I was saying, or I was touching on earlier when I first started, you know, a sound editorial crew could be 25 people. There were three mixers on stage. There was a dialogue mixer, a music editor, and an effects mixer. Down in the machine room, loading mag, I was the third guy in that crew. There was a recordist who just all he handled was patching in the recorders and then two loaders because we were hanging 40 mag units every reel change, which takes time, you know, to tweak it heads and all that boring analog stuff that nobody for better or worse i'm still not sure we'll ever have to do again mm-hmm. literally it's knowledge that i have in my head that is 100 useless like you know i will never have to learn how to, you know have to over bias mag or any of that garbage set up to all the noise reduction cards it's like dude i will never do that ever again <laughs> but um now like i said six guys on the sound editorial crew two mixers and me you know, that, and that's, that's, you know, you know, what's that 60, uh, 60%, 70% reduction in personnel on mm-hmm. a feature, on a feature show and on TV, sometimes it's even smaller. So yeah, there's a definite competition angle and yeah, you get, yeah, more people coming in and yeah, it's harder to break in because like I said, you have to hit the ground running. That's another bummer. It's like when I got in, there was these great entry level positions to, like I said, taking food to the stages. You know, running errands for mixers, going and getting office supplies from the vaults, you know, just total grunt work. But mm-hmm. they would, when it slowed down, they would toss you into one of the stages or into a transfer channel or, you know, take your pick of whatever to actually learn how to do something. And those, those entry-level apprenticeship type positions, they don't much exist anymore. And that's terrifying to me yeah. Yeah. because there's nobody learning how to do what what I do, and we, we, we do run into this where we'll bring people in, even people say like uh, in my position who have been doing television, television's very formulaic, it's very template-based, it's very straight ahead. You know, they get set up on episode one, they'll go to episode 22 and nothing will ever change. It's, you know, from a, from a, from a technical standpoint. So those yeah. guys kind of, their knowledge base narrows 
and their ability to think on their feet narrows as well because they don't have to. They're 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 in this little little biodome that never changes. Whereas ours is constantly we're getting hammered with change, you know, day mm-hmm. in and day out. So we'll bring those guys in, and holy cow, these poor bastards! They just vapor walk sometimes. They just have like panic attacks. We had a guy on one of our last big ones where it's like, I was getting texts. I'm like, because we'll run two stages a lot of times just because it's time. And one of the editors is like, you got to get over here. What are you talking about? This dude, I don't even know what he's doing. He's just sitting there. The stage isn't rolling. Like, oh, Christ. Run across the street. And the guy literally just like staring at the screen. I'm like, what's going on? I don't know. Like, how long has this been going on? 20 minutes. What? <laughs> you know, <laughs> holy shit, move. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you know, so it's like it's it's a it's such a specific skill set that I I man, I feel for anybody coming in and it, it, it's a bummer like it's a, such a bummer that we don't have at least somebody underneath some of the other guys learning so they can train them up. Right. Yeah. But, it, but it's money and Nobody wants to spend that money. And it's it's very short-sighted, in my opinion. Several years ago, we were working on The Revenant, and I was riding my bike to work every day. And one morning, I got tracked by a car and just got busted my wrist up, cracked a rib. Not cracked a rib, but really messed up my ribs. I was And I was out. I was off the show. I, oh, I, wow. you know, I got cast and my hand was like that. Can't really work a Pro Tools with a you know, thumb pointing straight up. And the guy they brought in, you know, he floundered hard. He had a hard time and he almost quit. Uh, like like, the show must go on man it's like it's not going to stop because i got hit by a car right but there was nobody immediately available with the skill set to step into the spot the guy he made it but it was uh unpleasant for him (laughs) yeah yeah and he's he's doing he's doing much better now but yeah it's like you come on to this high pressure that was a high pressure job with a crazy ass director and you know (laughs) just seven days a week and you know, we're, they were going like we're the stage was rolling nine to nine, so he was in at eight, and leaving at ten, and you know all that kind of stuff. So it's like, and he he'd been through it before, but nothing like. It's like, oh no, I've done this before. Like, dude, yeah. you haven't done this before. Trust <laughs> me. You know, and it's it's a real bummer that there's not a way to train people up anymore because it's yeah. like mm-hmm. even even at the school, how can you put how can you train for that? It's it's one of those things, man. It's just it's un the only way to do it is to do it. Yeah. yeah. And that is, yeah. that's exactly what I kind of hit too. When, when I was working on, when I was traveling with this film, the first mix, actually, we went to a mix stage in Denver and the guy there also worked for the university of university of Denver, or Colorado, or so there was a lot of intern type. There were students that came and, you know, I was just talking to him, asking questions and stuff. And I was like, so what do you want to do? You know, like in audio or what do you want to do? And they're like, well, I want to teach. I'm like, you want to teach? I'm like, teach audio. And they're like, yeah, I just, I'll graduate and probably get a job teaching. I'm like, so how does that work if you don't have any? I realized then that it's like, I think part of our system, if we've got students immediately turning into teachers without any real life experience, how many loopholes have happened of that? What we're teaching in the school is fine, but there's so much real life stuff that needs to be learned as well in that type of situation. How can you teach somebody if you've never actually done it? I mean, yeah, sure. You can teach the math of it. The theories don't change. That's what the book does. (laughs) That's what the book does. Exactly. But how do you, how do you apply that? And the problem with what we do and CJ, I'm sure you can speak to this is that there's six ways to do everything and they're all six of them. hundred percent correct. But yeah. How how do you know what's best for you? Man, the, the hell if I know. Like there's six ways to do that job. 
like you said, this Fast and Furious does not work in this TV model. This TV model doesn't work for your independent model. The independent model doesn't work for the documentary. You know, it's like they all have their different workflows. They're right. different, you know. This is going to sound silly, but it's true. The problems we had on Fast Five were not the problems we had on Fast Six. You know, mm-hmm. in a two-year window, it was a completely, it's like, oh, I know how to face this because I've done this before. It's like, no, you've never worked on Fast and Furious 6 before. You've worked on a Fast and Furious <laughs> movie before. That every, every project has its own nooks and crannies. It has its own curveballs it's going to throw at you that you don't know until that curveball you know, smacks you right in the temple. And like, okay, shit just got real. Now, now I know where we're at. And every project is like that. Every project is unique. There is no, in the feature world, I mean, in TV, like I said, it's very, it's stamped out. It's, it has to be, it has to be that, that level of efficiency. On the feature world, man, it's, it's always different. It's a different director. The director's super involved. Or, hey, now on this one, the director's not even there. The picture editor's doing, you know, all this stuff. Or, oh, the picture editor's been sidelined and the studio guy's in and he's telling us what to do. Or, yeah, it's always different. You know, speaking to what you were talking about earlier about, you know, failing till you succeed kind of thing. Do you feel like that's a little harder? Because I, f- I feel like as I've grown up, I've seen that companies back in the day used to have a little more ingenuity. You know, they let you kind of figure it out. Like there was a lot of figuring things out. And I feel like because of the competition today and because, like you said, people are wanting to do more with little that they're not giving people enough time to really fail to figure it out or to figure it out in general. And they're just moving on to the next person that might be able to get it. Do you feel like that's a bit more of a problem or do you see that really happening? Some, I, I see your point, but a lot of the, you know, there's the fake it till you make it concept for sure. Mm-hmm. But then I think in my industry, a lot of what breeds success is the type of individual who, when their ass is on fire, can still operate. Yeah. You know, when the failure, when everything's failing around them, that they can keep their wits about them just enough to, to move forward. You know, like I, I joke with, with our effects mixture all the time, you know, it's like when I'm, when I'm calm on the outside, the inside's a mess. I'm keeping a very calm visage on the outside. The inside is just like, shit, 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 shit. You know, pan, panic, 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 panic. Must be a sound guy. I think CJ works that way too. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot about, can I maintain, like I said, a visage of calm while panicking and troubleshooting all at the same time? Yeah, that's a personality trait that comes with time and experience and, yeah. Something yeah. that it's like, you know, even if shit's hitting the fan, uh, I'm, I'm not 100% where we're going to figure it out, but I'm going to do 100% to figure it out. Exactly. It's like, mm-hmm. do, I can't tell you guys how many times, like, we've got a new plug-in or a new device or what, what, whatever, uh, something new. And like, man, I have never seen this in my life. And, and the mixers are turning to me and go, why is it doing this? If I know, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you and I touched this at exactly the same time, but it's like, that's on the, that's my inside voice. Right. Uh, <laughs> you know, you know, on the outside, I'm like, oh yeah, okay, okay give me two seconds with that. It's just, it's just like either, you know, go, 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 you know, or, or the avid duck and like, oh God, I hope somebody's already failed on this and, and has a trick or the third, yeah. you know, more normal option is, uh, here we go. Just start pushing buttons. And, right. Okay. Yeah. Process the deduction. Okay. This none of this stuff does anything. There's nothing magical about it. It, it all does the same crap it's always done. Just Close like, your eyes. Yeah. Sometimes. Did you man, try turning it off and then back on again, <laughs> dude? You have no idea how often that is the fix. <laughs> you know, so Did you much recently we, update your system? <laughs> so much of what we do now is network based, and a lot of it is. It's like, okay, well, this application is what is the you know this is the communication hub between this and this. So it's like I'm rebooting this. Hey, look! Hey, look! Right. It works again. Hey, you know. <laughs> yeah. Hey, how'd you figure out how to do that? I'm all just now. 
(laughs) (laughs) There's so much just like you're a firefighter, man. You're just like, I got no choice but to fix it. So until it's like burned to the ground and I've got to, you know, throw up the white flag, which luckily, knock on wood, doesn't happen too often. You know, more often than not, I can... I can fake my way, even if, even with all these years in, a lot of it just like faking your way through. It's like they changed the software. I don't know. The GUI's different. Well, that button used to be right there and now it's not there anymore. Or, you know, okay, well, the nomenclature for this has changed dramatically. So you're like, okay, two plus two equals, oh, there's four. You know, there's still a lot of making it up as you go along, but I like to think, especially when there's a room full of people, it's the perception of calm. Like anything with, with experience comes the ability to, navigate those waters that's a huge mm-hmm. part of at least of being on a stage you know a live fire situation is to, to use a cheesy ad never let them see a sweat even if on the inside you are just yeah. dying but another component to all this is also not being afraid to ask for help which you know right because man sometimes you grab a hold of that anchor and it's going to take you all the way down that's yep. the best advice i could give to somebody who is not experienced who has not who has not grabbed that hot pan enough to know that don't grab the hot pan dummy you know it's hot Right. Yeah. Well, it's kind of a universal feeling of if you have a little bit of control on something, but you're losing your, you know, losing your shit, everyone starts to lose morale. You know what I mean? And that, that I've been on a lot of film sets where the director started like, oh, things aren't working out. Things are, you know, instead of going into like, we're going to figure it out mode, we're just like falling apart. And I'm going, dude, you're like the colonel, you know, you're the commander right here and you're losing your stuff. They're going to lose their stuff. We're going to lose, you know, everyone's going to start falling apart. And so it's just something to be said universally about, about keeping that calm, even when things are hitting the fan about being able to really reel it in and figure it out. You might not know at that moment, but you're going to get it eventually, especially when you're collaborating and when you're working with someone and asking for help or whatever, as long as you guys are all on the same page, there's such a different yeah. feeling than yeah. the opposite. <laughs> keep, your, keep your panic on the inside. We all do it. You know? Yeah. yeah. I, I think the people that think, oh, that guy never worries. It's like, no, that guy's just really good at hiding it. That guy, that guy knows how to internalize, you know. Yeah. That guy worries more than everyone on the set. <laughs> exactly. He, just, he, he knows how to internalize his terror more than anybody, you know. And I know that that's definitely been my, my MO for, for years, especially mm. – when I started, I wasn't on the stage. I was in a in, a, in, a, in an ancillary room full of machines. You know, it was great. If I was panicking, nobody saw. Mm-hmm. It. If I'm sitting there going fuck, 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 as long as I, my finger wasn't on the intercom button, I was good. Yeah. And yeah. I can't tell you how many times to be like, oh my god, I don't know what's going on. You hit the intercom button. <laughs> okay, man, almost there. Just give me more seconds. <laughs> Take your finger off the button. Oh my god. <laughs> you know, and you're flipping out because. But yeah, the, the, you had that. You had your intercom yeah. voice. And they're like. Uh, hey, Bill, your monitor's still going. We can still see you, even though you turned off the yep. audio. <laughs> exactly. When I started in that particular room, there was three rows of mag machines because it was only it was only supporting three different stages. But you know, there was mm-hmm. oh, jeez, about you know between recorders and players, about forty you know mag machines running running the length. You know, and then. I'm pretty sure that's just a spaceship on Alien. No. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll, I have I have a picture I haven't scanned somewhere. It's it's great because there's like these old RCA 35 millimeter mag machines, and then next to it is this two inch machine, and then there's a pile of DD8s next to that. It was like right in that weird that weird transition. It's like it's about 97, 98 when everything just started going. Yeah, <laughs> we were using it all at the same time. But yeah, there, that was that was that was definitely the uh, you know screaming at the mixer who couldn't hear you because he was a floor above you. 
and then hit the intercom with, with your nice, right. <laughs> most, most, most sugary voice. Okay, you got it. The mixers are just like, did you hear something? <laughs> No, okay. uh, we're good. Well, when when I was when I first started in the Hitchcock machine room, there's actually pipes that go up from from the machine room that was downstairs because literally it was you know I was in the basement and then there was this other in the stages up here. But I didn't know at the time, but there was conduit that went up to a patch bay that was on the stage, and if you got too loud, they could hear you. <laughs> Maybe not super clear, but they could tell when you were screaming. <laughs> Yeah. So yeah. you so you started doing the uh, the Joe Pesci the yeah, exactly. <laughs> pull in, just pull in, just pull in. It's gotta be tough because I mean their life and job is to listen for things and they're like, Oh, I heard exactly what yeah. you said. <laughs> I know who said it, I know what you said, I know what you said about me. Yeah. Oh no, yeah. I'm sure I have Hose myself more than once in, in that kind of situation. But it was a long time ago, so it came out ahead. Well, I think uh, yeah. going back to kind of like what you were talking about on, especially talking to new people or people that are newer, almost all of what I do is because at one point in time, I lied about what I knew how to do. Oh, yeah. My first big post job was a sound supervisor for a TV show, which was, was way, way, way over, I heard that there was kind of a position. So I was like, okay, I'm going to buy an inbox. I'm going to try and learn some pro tools. And, uh, and so they're like, well, do you know how to do this and this, this? And I'm like, mm-hmm. And so that <laughs> night, you know, I went home and I, you know, I, I pulled out the manuals. You got to be willing to just take the job, you know, learn it. You'll find, you know, and the first one's going to suck, you know, you'll learn. But I think there's something about the skill. So like we learn things, right? But especially like the new students and the, you know, like when I'm talking to my kids, it's like, you got to learn how to learn. And it's not just about knowing yeah. something. It's about adapting, especially with the technology changes that we're going through. I could go into coding. Like I've never really done coding very much, but like coding changes so fast that I'm not really at a disadvantage for starting late because it's all new. It's new every like, you know, two months or whatever, or two weeks. Yeah. I think really what it is is resourcefulness. Are you mm-hmm. resourceful in that you might not know the answer, but you know that you know how to find the answer, you know, or you know the steps to take to find or eliminate the things that aren't the answer. So just the bravery. Yeah. And I think the thing is too, is like when there's a thousand levels, it's jumping up one level or two levels going, okay, I'm at 37. I'm going to try this job. That's a 38 or 39 mm-hmm. and not jump into 70 because then you go, oh, yeah, CJ doesn't know what he's doing. He totally screwed up this job, and everybody knows it. And then you have to work to bring that back, where if you're just like, okay, I don't know how to do the next level up of this bigger project, but I'm going to take it, but not to jump up so far that then you majorly screw it up. Well, the, the resources to figure out what you don't know are way more than they were just a few years ago. I mean, when we got the the oh, new the yeah. new control surfaces that work, the the Avid S6, it's one of those things, nobody knows how to work it, except for like four guys. And thankfully, those four guys are posting tons of videos on YouTube. So it's like every, mm-hmm. every bit of setup, we learn by watching freaking YouTube videos. Even now, like professional audio gear, it's like manual, useless. You know, some schmo from Florida on YouTube Oh my God, he answered the question in, in a five minute video. This is fantastic. So yeah. the, the tools are, are there. When I first start, and I, I, this, is, this is my most, one of my most embarrassing first week stories, was I'm sitting there and I'm 18 years old. I don't know my ass from a hole in the ground. The, my, the extent of my sound work at that point had been doing playback audio on a set for a thing my dad was on. 
So I, I rolled a Nagra, like on a 30-second loop. Ooh, sound, sound guy. <laughs> so I come in, and they're explaining all this geographical separation stuff. First, they're talking about trackheads. I'm like, what the hell are they talking about? Okay, trackheads. But then they start talking about, and this is embarrassing as hell, 16 millimeter and 35 millimeter. And I didn't have a clue what they meant. And there wasn't like, I couldn't just like go, oh, I got to go take a leak, pull out my phone and hit the Google. I either had to man up and ask the question, which I can admit I did not. Or three days later, it finally, oh, it's just the size. You know, but I mean, the tools now to, to get past that stupid learning curve are, you know, so much more impressive. But you have to have the resourcefulness to go use those tools. And there's a difference between someone hiring you, thinking you can do a job, and you lying about being able to do the job, and or saying yes, maybe not at the moment, but when you need it, I will have yeah. the job done. You know what I mean? Like CJ and I had worked on a film called Adira years ago and I remember they had asked me uh, to act in it and they went can you do a German accent and in my head I was like not yet (laughs) you know (laughs) but I was like yeah because I know by the time you need it I'll have the accent you know what I mean and so that was the thing it's like I wasn't going to be like yeah I can and then get on set and be like I I don't know how to do it (laughs) you know what I mean but it's like that being able to go yeah I have a dialect book I have videos, I have sounds, I have things I can learn to learn it to when you need it. And I think that coming back to that resourcefulness, it's like, you're not saying, yeah, I can. And then you just show up and you have no idea yeah. what you're doing. It's the idea of like, yeah, I can. And when you need yeah. it, I'll Gotta have go it. put the man hours in. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Well, I remember watching something too. I think there's something to remembering that there are things that, you know, no one's going to be paying you all the time to like learn something on a job. So it's like when you work something, you're like, man, that was kind of, I need to figure out how to do that better next time. I should take that and learn it. You know, I remember uh, listening to Henry Cavill talk about working on Mission Impossible 6. And he's like, I thought, yeah, well, I can do this halo jump, you know, like, let me do it. Like, I'll learn how to do it. That'll be amazing. And he's like, I didn't, wasn't thinking about the fact that Tom Cruise was spending six months before we started shooting learning how to do that jump, learning how to fly a helicopter on his own to do those shots. He's like, he was doing that on his own. To, obviously, he's got millions of dollars in downtime <laughs> to do that. But but he realizes like, no, like I need to be learning some of that stuff because when it's time to do it, I need to already know how to do it. Not to say, obviously, that you can't figure it out, but you you won't always like, when you know, Bill, you kept talking about like time, 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 time. You won't always be like, oh, I've got a week to figure out how to fix this dialogue. It's like, No, you have a week to work on the dialogue, not figure out how to fix that thing. That needs to be fixed. And then you need to spend your week working on it. (laughs) (laughs) You know, so it's like when you find those hiccups on other jobs, go, okay, I need to set that aside. And then when that December comes around and I'm not working on anything, I'll sit down and spend, you know, a couple hours here and a couple hours there figuring it out. Or when I'm done, I'll watch that YouTube (laughs) video or whatever. Here's what's going to get me through this job, but then I need to figure out how to put that back into my skill set so that it is there and locked in and ready to go the next time. Well, let's be honest. Uh, no matter how much experience Henry Cavill had doing Halo jumps, uh, Tom Cruise was never going to let him do that. Job. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, I don't know if you've seen the movies, but I do something cool yeah, every time. Me, me. I'm the cool guy. <laughs> let's kind of tie this this thing up as far as we could go on forever. But we're talking about some crazy steps, the resilience of what we will do or whatever. But I guess the the looming question is why. Like, why do we do that? What pushes us to do it? And, you know, is there an answer that is even tangible in that? Are we just crazy or, or, or why? 
That's a, it's a good question because I like to think I'm not a workaholic because I like nothing more than getting the hell off of that stage and going and doing something that I want to do. But how do you work a hundred hour a week if you don't have workaholic tendencies? I, or I work, you know, some of the guys I've worked with in the past and sometimes recently, they're like the textbook example of like, this is, yeah, they don't do Coke. They do this. You know, they are, mm-hmm. they are laser focused on their job and that that's their hobby. It's their life. I'm not that bad. Like I don't, I know guys that's like, okay, we're at lunch. We've been working on Pro Tools all day long and all they want to do is talk about some new Pro Tools book. Like, dude, I, I don't care. I've hit it. I've got around it. I don't want to talk about it anymore. I don't want to talk about this plug. And this is like, this is not my hobby. This is what I do for a living. So, mm-hmm. but like I said, at the same time, obviously I have that madness in me because how, how the hell else could you do this? I mean, other than in my case, it's like, like I said, at the beginning of all of this, it's literally the only thing I know how to do. It'll, it'll, you know, make it so I can eat, but yeah. Yeah. Never mixed for fun. <laughs> See, I'd say no, but then like, we'll do these crazy shows. And on the weekends I'm mixing some independent, whatever. It's like, I, I don't know where my, I, yeah. I couldn't even tell you where my head's at on this. It's, or, you know, we work from, I work from eight until seven 30 and then I cut dialogue on the thing I'm going to mix next until midnight. Like yeah. dude, there's something yeah. very wrong with me. I get that, but it's not <laughs> like I'm, I'm only doing that. God, it's hard to even say it's not my hobby. Cause I guess at that point, since I'm barely making any money doing that thing, it kind of is a hobby, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's a tough call. I mean, there's definitely a sickness and you can't spend hours upon hours and days of days and weeks and weeks in a dark, loud room without some sort of, you know, underlying madness pushing you forward. Is some of it ego? A hundred percent, especially in my case, like I can probably say this with a hundred percent certainty. I would go to some transfery kind of behind the scenes, not working on anything current job before I did television. It's part of my ego. I don't get it. It's stupid. I've been fortunate mm-hmm. enough and I, I know that to work on my career has been 98, 99% of feature films. I've done a, like this much TV work and I hated it because it was so mm-hmm. like we're talking, it was so templated, you know, it was so standardized. I mean, there's guys who do fantastic television work. I was working on horrible stuff when I filled it. So yeah, there's definitely an ego, an ego push for me. Like I can admit that. Like I get to work as much as it's yeah. silly to say, Hey man, I've worked on every Fast and the Furious movie. It's like, it sounds stupid to say out loud, but it's like, dude, those movies have made billions of dollars and millions and millions of people have seen them. That's pretty, that's pretty damn yeah. cool. Yeah. I feel like ego kind of pushes us farther as artists in a certain sense and not not always in a negative. Like sometimes your ego is what keeps you going at it, you know? And I think that's something to be said is like finding that balance of like the positive and the negative to yeah. your ego and like where you can make it work for you. We've all known people whose egos got in the way of them doing anything. I don't think I'm a dick. I don't think I'm mean about it, but it's definitely it's, it's the thing that has pushed me forward. It's the thing that keeps me as focused as I can when things get out of hand. There's not many people that do what I do. And that's really wild to think about. I work a small industry, generally speaking, and I work in a very even smaller subsection of that industry. I know most of the people that are doing in town, they're friends of mine that are doing my job at this level. Now, mm-hmm. and I don't know that many people. <laughs> so that's <laughs> Do you feel like you've made your father and your grandfather proud? I know I made my dad proud, and my grandmother before before she passed away was super stoked. You know that was all she talked about was like, you know, he went into the same business as his grandfather. You know, I know she, I know right before she passed, she was super stoked on it because the rest of my family they all they're all cops, and that never did anything oh, yeah. for her. so so that I did the same thing, and then named my youngest kid after her husband. She was really stoked. I, 
major points there. <laughs> so I, I, I mean, my dad is super impressed by what I've done. I mean, he, my dad did primarily television. So it, in production work. So to see mm-hmm. what we're doing in the hours, he's just like, my God, I don't know how you guys do it. And so, so that, so that I can blow his mind a little bit. It's been pretty rad. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> I hope I've done the name justice. Yeah. <laughs> as much as <laughs> I was telling CJ yesterday, I have a picture that my dad gave me for Christmas a few years ago. It's my grandfather's standing on a fisher boom, which is like the old, the big massive ones they stood up on and they had like the cable, tent, oh, you know, they're like, uh-huh. yeah. and Orson Welles is leaning against the boom with him. It's like, I'll never have a picture like that. <laughs> you know, so I got, I got nothing on him, man. It's like, or a picture of uh, my grandfather was a production mixer on Happy Days and Ron Howard's leaning against his cart. I got nothing like that, man. It's like, okay, I got a few crew pictures with, you know, okay, hot shit director A, B, or C. It's like, that's just not the same, man. That's a crew picture. That's not like dude leaning against my workstation. <laughs> I just I just imagine like your dad at one point was like, this boom's been in our family for generations. <laughs> <laughs> and now I'm handing it to you. Um, no, sorry, dad. I do, I do post work. I don't do any on-set stuff. And, and I don't do television, so, you know. Well, what's funny is he, he pushed me into post. He's just like, he's like, no, I don't want you to have to, and CJ can speak to this, I don't want you to have to hustle your next job while you're on this job. That's, he's like, it's horrible. It's horrible. He's like, you're not doing that. Mm-hmm. Just all the years of my dad worked on a little house in the prairie, and I go to work with him, and oh, it's hotter than hell. You're out there, and, well, now it's now there's a golf course where where the whole town was, but you know it's like still it's it's a high desert in the summer, man. It sucks. Yeah. <laughs> or like going to downtown LA at five a.m. because he's working on Hunter or TJ Hooker or some stupid cop show. <laughs> he's like, man, he's like, it sucked. Go where the air conditioning is. Like, okay, okay, yeah. I, I okay. can I can dig that. <laughs> little did I know that I'd be working hundred hour weeks. Yeah. Yeah. Our family is handing down this boom, but when we were developing tools, we also developed yeah. pro tools. <laughs> Even then, like the, the booms that they have now versus like, you know, I remember when he got his first aluminum one and he was stoked. And now it's like the carbon fiber ones that are like, even way less than those will ever weigh. Yeah. <laughs> it's just all these, you know, everything improves. Literally everything improves. Nice. I, 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 I like that. I found a whole box of his old cables. I'm like, why do I have these? Why do I have, what do I need a hundred foot XLR, you know, yeah. cable for? Yeah. You gotta have a cable for That's everything, awesome. man. I'm, just, I'm, I'm totally guilty of that. Like I've got boxes and boxes of adapters that I will never, ever, ever touch, you know? But I bring him to set every time, you know, I'm like, there's going to be one time that I need to spit up to a uh, RCA to a, you know, but I've never used any of them. Exactly. Your your adapter is six (laughs) feet long because it's like from That's a weird thing. Cause like when you talk about like production versus post production jobs as a sound guy, I would go and do my thing and I'd get wrapped around lunch and, you know, full day rate, but you move into post and almost immediately you're spending more hours, whatever it is, you know, you're going to spend the full time thing. But there's something about the stress, I think, of shooting that you're going to be exhausted the same exact way. Even if it's a chill day, I think the mental preparation that you go through to make sure you've got options and solutions for every problem that could possibly happen, you know, that's filmmaking is you're showing up and it's just a bunch of problems, you know, like how are you going to fix all the problems, you know, and, and cause there's stuff that you can't, you can't plan for and all that kind of stuff. So there's no rewind in production. It's like you, you had one shot to get it. If you didn't get it, that's gone yeah. forever. Mm-hmm. We, we blow something. Ah, hell stop. Rewind, fix it. Undo, fix yeah. it. 
guy says a line, you had one shot at it. I know, yeah, that's the big thing. Like I prefer to work with talent or with professional paid actors because a lot of the jobs were with, you know, like a sports guy. You know, they're gonna say it one time and they're gone. You know, they're they're out the door. <laughs> Whereas with an actor, they'll just keep do it as many times as you need. But yeah, that's a I like coffee as much as I like football. <laughs> Is that good, guys? Because I'm out. Coffee. Yeah. Okay. Uh, you only had me for two hours, and you spent an hour and a half in makeup. I got so a I Call of Duty game. I, uh, <laughs> we literally got shut down for a Call of Duty. The, it was actually, we were interviewing Hunt. That was our running back that got in trouble. And what was his name? Cream Hunt. Cream Hunt, yeah. Cream. We were at, at his house shooting, and then he gets a knock on the door, and his friend like hands him a package. You know, We're getting ready to sit down to an interview, right? And everything's good, you know. and then he opens the package, and it's the new Call of Duty. And he's like, uh, <laughs> uh, guys, I guys, gotta play this. <laughs> I, gotta, I got a meeting at like yeah, he, he, he totally cut it short. And like and which is fine. What I mean, he's a dude, you know. <laughs> Doesn't he know there's like an hour install yeah, of time? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> he's like, you guys have until that percentage gets to one hundred. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, what we were talking about, like lying to get a job, do the uh just say whatever you would need to say to get get the thing. That was basically the story of how we met Bill in a way. Because <laughs> don't tell them. <laughs> I, I probably faked it pretty good. But, so you know, I had never mixed a feature film before, and so you know, the client had gone to different places and tried to get it you know going, and so they'd fly me out or whatever to Colorado or wherever it was, and it just was like not go like not working. You know, they're paying a lot of money for time. You know, so I'm like, well. I could probably mix it, you know? So I, so I grabbed like, I grabbed all it was, was a, like a, a Blu-ray receiver that had RCA outputs 5.1. And I was like, I bet you if I route my interface to where it's like one through six, and then I go here into the interface. So I'm, I'm literally sitting there in, you know, a room with a Blu-ray receiver patching this thing in 5.1 with you know, not 5.1 session. It's just straight up. I'm like hodgepodge in this thing, like trying to figure out like how to salvage. At one point it was in New Window and then it was in uh, Pro Tools and then it was back into New Window and then, you know, all this, all this stuff like back and forth. So I basically had to take anything I could get and start from scratch. So I just sat in my garage and learned how to do 5.1. So that was <laughs> like my first like you know, digging through it. And so after that, we got went and got it formatted into a Pro Tools, like the proper Pro Tools format as far as like 5.1 and getting all this stuff. And then at that point, they're like, well, we've spent this much money on it. Why don't we just go get it mastered at Universal? And I was like, okay, that sounds good to me. <laughs> like, can you, go to, can you go to LA for a few weeks? I'm like, yeah, I can go, I can go, to, I can go to LA. And so, and of course it was in Pro Tools 10, which is the first Pro Tools 10 was it the first Pro Tools 10 session for the studio or for the for, for, for the stage? Yeah, for the for stage. The stage. For sure, yeah. Yeah. And so we walked in. And we already knew we were going to have some challenges. And of course, I'm like, hold it together, hold it together, hold it together. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> just don't show. You know, and I walk in. And what's crazy, and to your guys' uh, you know, credit, is like, I walked in like royalty, man. Like when I walked on the stage, it was just like, there was a <laughs> greeting, you know, uh, what's her name? Kirsten. Yeah. Kirsten, you know, yeah. she's there and like, and there's coffee and there's all this stuff, you know, and I meet you and I meet uh, Frank Montano and, you know, as a mixer guy, you know, like a dude that wants to do more audio, 
I'm just like exploding on the inside. Like Like, this is beyond anything. And so walking into that situation and then the story that you gave me, of course, when I walked in about who was there right before me or sitting in the same seat, mixing jaws. (laughs) Yep. Yeah. He was, he was just sitting there and we, cause yeah, that was like a couple days after we'd done that jaws and Raiders playback. Oh yeah, for like yeah. (laughs) So yeah, Spielberg, and then they had Ben Burt was there that day as well, and all Paramount Brass, all those Universal Brass. Yeah, and And I was like, literally the next day. (laughs) You're like, I think you said something like, "It's usually maybe not this clean in here, but we just got done with a really big (laughs) thing," and I was like, "That sounds sounds about right." (laughs) Yeah, and uh, so it was just really cool, and then uh, just the whole experience was really just eye opening and. Of course, when we loaded the session and then all of a sudden, you know, uh, something with the disc allocations or something to where we're watching a scene and then all of a sudden dialogue from scene number one's coming in through uh, scene number six or whatever, or, you know, just like total chaos and some of the the way that the files were working. Mm -hmm. I mean, the whole time, though, like I could tell like you were treating me the same as like, like whatever you know, like anybody really. Cause yep. I mean, when it was lunchtime, you guys walked, you know, like we just went and got, grabbed some lunch, anything I needed. I'm like, man, I'm like, good. Like I'll just stay here, man. I'm good. <laughs> I got to feel- all right, Bill, be honest. Is that how you treat Spielberg? <laughs> the handful of times I've been on the stage with him, I just stand to the side and keep my mouth shut. <laughs> I thought this was going to turn into a, hey, guys, you remember when I told you I had to fix other people's mess-ups? <laughs> I thought he was talking about how we tricked Bill into being on our podcast that we just yeah. started. <laughs> I'm easy, man. I'm, I'm super easy. <laughs> yeah. We got you on here so you could get Spielberg here. <laughs> Good luck with that. Yeah. Let me know how that works out. <laughs> yeah. Jeez. I do remember one day that when I showed up, I don't know if you remember this or not. I was driving, you know, I was staying at a hotel, drove to the studio, got there and we're getting ready to get started. You know, Frank's there getting, you know, getting rolling. And Kristen comes in and she's like, oh, did you bring the check? And I'm like, oh, shoot. No, it's back at the hotel. Yeah, I can, I can, you know, like there, the, the pause was like really long, like for us especially Midwestern culture. It's like, oh yeah, no, it's fine. You know, you can pay me tomorrow. You just pay me tomorrow or whatever. But it was just like that awkward, okay, when are you going to get up and drive back to the hotel and go get that check? <laughs> and that's literally what I had to do. You don't understand. Today doesn't yeah. start no, that's how it was. until that's in my hand. <laughs> you start to understand like this is paying people's salary. You know, like this is yeah. actually, oh, this is actually how people live. Yeah. Like this makes sense now. So I thought that was pretty not dry, dry <laughs> no, I, I do remember that, and I do remember you leaving, and I do remember her saying, release nothing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah of course. <laughs> we're already kind of a smaller, you were a smaller film and stuff, you know, I'm sure it's like, so we definitely have to have you back on, man, and and this is like super cool, just especially, you know, the audio nerds are going to go wild over um, getting to have insight like this, and so yeah. we really appreciate what you're doing as far as we got to have the pioneers, and I think that you are kind of in that set to where, I mean, you were on the first Dolby Atmos experiment group and, and all that kind of stuff, so you're kind of pioneering the way in a lot of that. Yeah, we're, we're trying, man. We're trying. <laughs> Try, yeah. try, trying to break <laughs> it, you know. So let's tie it up here. Let me just ask you a couple questions real fast. What's your favorite book? Books? Yeah. <laughs> I bounce all over the place. Probably the one I've read the most is, this is uh, all too applicable, is The Stand. 
by Stephen King. I love that book. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I've read that book probably four times since I got it for the first time when I was 13. If you'd asked me a few years ago, I would have said The Fountainhead, but I've since drastically changed my outlook on, on a lot of that stuff in life. Mm. Uh, I've realized that that's the most selfish way to live imaginable. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> and I've, I've, tried to, I've tried to change my outlook on that one in a, in a big way. Not try, I have. I've been reading a lot of books about hiking lately. Go figure. <laughs> uh, Undaunted Courage, that's a good one about the Lewis and Clark expedition. Hey, I played Lewis in, uh, on St. Louis thing this last <laughs> couple of years. <laughs> yeah, that, that's, a, that's, a, that's a wild ride, that one. Just all that stuff with people who are doing something that's never been done before. Ambrose is such a good writer in that regard. Yeah. He's just he, he brings you right there, in my opinion. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think that's kind of the theme of this uh this episode. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Doing you know, jumping into the unknown and just going for it. Yeah, a hundred percent. and it, yeah. it's you know, especially the the Lewis and Clark expedition is a, a wonderful allegory for all of life in that regard. Like you never when you literally don't know what's around the next turn. Mm-hmm. When you're not doing audio, what are you doing for enjoyment? It, hanging out with the family a lot as as often as possible. Um, like when when you and I first met, I was riding my bike ungodly distances, and then getting hit during the revenant definitely took the steam out of that. You know, I was doing two hundred mile rides and shit like that. You know, for fun. Bicycle, 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 bicycle or motorcycle? Bicycle, bicycle. bicycle. Oh, okay. <laughs> Human powered. <laughs> I've been recently getting a bit back into backpacking until, of course, they shut down the entire world. So that's been kind of a bummer. Now my hobby is cleaning the garage. So I got that going for me. Nice. <laughs> and, and, and finding all the stuff I've hoarded over the, the last 20 years or so. Yeah, yeah I saw your baseball <laughs> cards. Uh, yep. je- jealous of your uh, the George Bretts and the Bo Jacksons you got in there. Not the Consecos, man? Not the McGuire's? <laughs> Go full do- yeah. Don't want to go full doper with me? <laughs> <laughs> Bash Brothers. Exactly. I sent you a sticker. I think that's probably worth that Bo Jackson rookie card. Oh, you think so, yeah. huh? Yeah. Like, just wait, <laughs> wait by the mailbox. It's on the way. <laughs> yeah. Well, this has been super fun. We, again, we just really appreciate it. And this is going to be really valuable. Yeah, this has been appreciate awesome. Appreciate meeting you, Bill, and sharing with us and talking. It was, huh? It's been awesome. We'll definitely have to bring you back. And- oh, it's my pleasure. I feel like we barely, barely scratched the surface. Yeah. As always, please check out the show notes for links to our guest's work. The Creator Burn Podcast is a production of C2D2 Films and Follow Happy Productions, written and produced by Chad Crenshaw, Davis DeRock, and CJ Drummiller. Original music by CJ Drummiller and Joseph Adam Gray. <laughs> Fast and Furious 5. Oh, wait, no. Nine. Nine. Fast five. Fast fast nine. F9. I love how they finally just got to the point where they're just like, uh, you know, there was like, oh, Fast and the Furious. Faster and more furious or whatever. (laughs) It's like. (laughs) They ran out of adjectives. Fastest and furious. (laughs) And uh, like they kept going and kept going. And then it was just like. Too fast, too furious. You know, and then they're like, uh, how about (laughs) F9? Yeah. (laughs) Pun intended. It's called Vroom and Boom. (laughs) It's not even FF9, which is so. Like, why isn't it (laughs) FF9? Fast and Furious 9. It's just F9. I'm probably missing some well, sort of... Well, it would be <laughs> Final Fantasy Nine if it was FF9. All right. That'd be a big contention. It, it should just... F and F. F and F. This is F a lot of F. movies. F and F. <laughs> nine, man. F and F, nine, bro. Oh, wait. I know why. Because F stands for family. <laughs> <laughs> Have you ever watched these movies before? It's about family. <laughs> it's family, gosh damn it. And cars. It's about family living life quarter mile at a time. <laughs> I don't know who this is. I think this is Sylvester <laughs> Stallone. Uh, uh, I got family. Uh.
Hey, Paolo, maybe we get in the car, maybe we don't. I don't know. <laughs> and then, uh, you want to go for a ride? <laughs> Adrian. 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 That's where we're starting the episode. <laughs> <laughs>